Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we delightedly read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are swimming, impressionist renderings that capture the unmoored nature of their volatile protagonist. Told in the first person, these books report their story with the confusion, embitterment, and loneliness of a man journaling just to feel that when he speaks, his words go somewhere and materially exist. Infused with all of this loner's resentment and malapropisms, the text ping-pongs erratically from topic to topic, like the frenzy of an addled mind. Novelizations are character studies that forego any concern with arc, and instead say, this is how he is. This is what it would actually be like to have this bee's nest inside your brain. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. And I'm Hannah Blackman. Taxi Driver! Kapow. Uh, is a 1976 film directed by Martin Scorsese. It follows Travis Bickle, a military veteran, unsure how to spend his life now that he has been transposed from the battlefields of Vietnam to the mean old streets of New York City. Seeking purpose behind the wheel of a taxi... Mean streets. Huh. Mean streets. Huh. Now there's an idea for a movie. <laughs> Uh, boy it's like we just came up with it can you imagine how good that would be (laughs) sorry i'm giggly i no it's okay i'm trying to figure out how to just casually fit cape fear into a conversation but it's not coming work on it it'll come naturally if you let it (laughs) seeking purpose behind the wheel of a taxi travis finds that his new job treats him to a never-ending reel of humanity's sins Inevitably, his lust for personal fulfillment and his hatred of how others find theirs. What is this word? I'm so sorry. Concatenates. 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 This. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so I'll. Sorry. I'll. I'll do. I'll. I'll do a little tangent on concatenation. So, Julio, for you, like often, Andrew mispronounces words, and I make fun of him, and so I think this is payback because um, I've never heard. I don't this think word I've heard before. it either. I'm very sorry, and I'm feeling uh, rather ignorant for not knowing it. <laughs> So here's here's the story behind concatenates. I was in English class in college, I think, and we were discussing some passage and the word concatenates came up and everyone moved through it as if it was a word we all knew. And my hand shot up and I, I said, what, I- what is that? What does that mean? And the way that my professor described it, which was so eloquent, was it's the connection between objects in which they're slightly overlaid that can be either literal or figurative. But she was like, the way to think of it is like those roofs where the tiles aren't just next to each other. They're like the side of one is nestled atop another. That's concatenation. And she was like, you'll find that our ideas often do that themselves. And I've never forgotten it. Fascinating. It's, um, well, I won't forget it either now. Thank you. Yeah, great word. Great word, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah. Huge <clears throat> win in my book to start the episode. Yeah, concatenates what I would describe as a Venn diagram. <laughs> well, anyway. There's the implication. No, hold on. Oh, okay. There's the implication of support, that, the, that oh, okay. these things are supporting one another. I see. So I reject I your 2D okay. model. okay. Well, that's important information that I guess I missed from your initial description. Yeah, that's true. That I dropped the Fascinating. ball. Fascinating. Uh, great. It's like one of those arches where they all... Yeah. Anyway, gotcha. I gotcha. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, guess who's concatenating? It's Travis Bickle. Um, into an irresistible <laughs> desire to take action in some 
gosh darn direction. I'm so good at segues, you must admit. But who will be the object of his malice when the roulette wheel in his head stops spinning? And will this radical revision of society, inked in lead and blood, bring the satisfaction it seems to promise? Ooh, Andrew, writing. Really, you woke up this morning and chose eloquence. I'm proud of you. Thank you. I haven't uh, biked in several weeks, and I (laughs) sacrificed another morning, or a beautiful sunny morning, where I could have gone biking, and I woke up and I said, how can I write about a film one million people have written about? I think that you have taken the energy of not bicycling and you have put it into the writing of this intro, which is on theme for Taxi Driver. The novelization of which was written by Richard Elman based on an original screenplay by Paul Schrader. It was published by Bantam Books in February of 1976. Paul Schrader, who we should say, as of the recording of this episode, health very much up in the air. I thought he was, like, released from the hospital, gonna be fine. Wait, did that happen? I feel like I read that. Eh, I think that happened before Venice. His producer today said he was in good shape, um, with some qualifiers either side of of that kind of description, I think. But uh, uh, he's been talking to him, so hopefully he's gonna be okay, but... uh... It would be awful to log off of this and be like, oh no, he died! Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or discover (laughs) mid-episode. Yeah, that'd be terrible. It's really a lose-lose for Schrader uh, in the sense that he either dies or he's fine after giving seemingly many speeches at Venice and whatnot where he's like, this is the final chapter. I had to get it out before death took hold. He was talking so strangely in these last couple days, and it's kind of king shit to just do that and then yeah. check the fuck out. Let's hope, I mean, you know, uh, let's hope not, but uh, I mean, it comes to us all. so. Um... And what a triumph to, if, if he does pass before he makes another movie, what a triumph to go out on, like, three movies where people are going, oh my god, he got it back, this is maybe his best work. Just, just amazing. Anyway, I, I promise to our guests that you will be introduced <laughs> after I tell the listeners about Richard Elman. Okay, so, who is Richard Elman? Richard Elman was an American novelist, poet, journalist, and teacher. A self-described socialist, Elman's life oscillated between creative writing endeavors and hard-hitting journalism, including a long-term engagement in Nicaragua, where he reported on the Somoza regime and the rebels opposing it. Elman juggled this and his other creative capacities in equal measure, reporting, writing fiction, and teaching all in rapid succession and rotation. His uh, fiction bibliography included original works and several media tie-ins. In addition to novelizing Taxi Driver, Elman also novelized the first two Smokey and the Bandit films as one book, one novelization for the plot of two of those, and novelized selections from the television shows Shannon and the miniseries The Gangster Chronicles. The uh, Shannon one is particularly interesting to me, because it was a U.S. TV series that was canceled after only nine episodes, and then novelized for exclusive U.K. release, which I think was an attempt to just squeeze out a few more bucks from a property that uh, didn't end up sort of taking hold. They also, novelizing miniseries in general, as he does with the Gangster Chronicles, a whole different direction for our podcast to possibly go at some point. Because the age of the television miniseries 
it was almost one-to-one accompanied by the age of the television miniseries novelization. Are those one book per miniseries, or is it like a, a series of little books? I would never say something absolute, but it seems like for the most part it's one per miniseries. Mm-hmm. Our guest today, <laughs> a filmmaker whose film I have seen here in Chicago at a film festival named, what was the name of that festival? It, it was actually a, a, a screening at Chicago Filmmakers, which wasn't really part of a festival, but was something we had organized with Chicago Filmmakers because the writer... David Hapshine has a connection with them. So you were at this event um, outside the, uh, the, the formal structure of a film festival, but which nonetheless had something of a film festival feel about it, perhaps, is how I'd describe yeah, it. Yeah, I think I saw the Blue Whiskey Film Festival there, too. I think the venue got my wires crossed. Yeah. Anyway, a film I saw at an independent one-shot film festival. <laughs> That's good. Uh, Julio Maria Martino. Uh, director of Country of Hotels, which I, I, I'm not even going to venture to explain what that film is. We'll, we'll talk about it right now. But, uh, Julio, first of all, how are you doing today? And uh, I don't know, where should we start? Wait, yeah, tell us about your movie to begin with. I want to I sort of hear about where you're coming from, from a, a filmmaking perspective. Yeah, um, well, I'm very good, thanks, and uh, delighted to be here. Uh, the film was... Uh, my first feature film, hopefully not my last feature film, but it was a film where I managed to get it set up so that really we weren't working within the constraints of anybody saying, you know, your film needs to have a conventional beginning, middle and end. You really need to do this or, you know, it's got to be a certain length. And we really tried to create something that was, you know, at the outer reaches of what our imaginations could kind of cope with. And the film is set in a hotel in Palatine, USA, where people enter this hotel. Palatine. Palatine, yeah. Uh, Palatine. It's Synergy. I've not been to Palatine, but uh, because the film is set entirely within this hotel, so I felt like I didn't need to uh, go there. And yeah, there is some synergy with 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 taxi driver there or or um what was that word you mentioned as a verbal uh concatenation yeah perhaps i don't know but yeah uh where it's a a mysterious hotel but people enter and things happen to them they go missing they go mad uh they take their own lives uh, they never go out of this hotel and the hotel is 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 run by this mysterious uh, hotel staff that speak uh, uh, an indecipherable East European sounding language and they they seem to be up to no good although it's never quite clear at what level they're up to no good but really the more the film goes on the more you're encouraged to feel that this is a metaphor for something else that something else is happening that these people are you know that life is like this that this is actually a a way of describing our journey through lives if one was to sort of see it through maybe a purgatorial lens perhaps i mean that's sort of a, a quick way of describing it although i don't really as an artist try and deal in sort of um, clear metaphors i like uh, work that tends to sort of uh, spur the human human imagination to make these connections and to to draw these lines across i think your film is a perfect example of concatenation in the sense that 
it is a, an anthology of sorts in that each act is its own story within this uh, yeah. this hotel. Uh-huh. But they do sort of lean on each other a little yeah. narratively. I think that's and right. And cross over in the smallest ways, sort of like a roof tile. Yeah. <laughs> that 15% of it's on another roof tile. Somebody's going to like tweet at us and be like, he didn't even get the definition of the word right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the, uh, I'm really looking forward go, to go. finding out that you've made this word up entirely. But this is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one, uh, no one investigate that. So <laughs> I, I will say, uh, when watching your film, which I, I, I really loved, uh, someone in the audience did at one point say Palatine is a shithole. Yeah. I've heard that. Because <laughs> you were because this was in Chicago. Yeah. And uh-huh. someone who I don't know grew up there yeah. or something was like, I actually have a really strong opinion about this yeah. place. <laughs> I think it's known for like a, some murders called the chicken murders that happened there or something. I, I don't know much about them. But uh I think it wasn't murders of chickens. I think it was sort of connected to chickens in some other way. But it's it's known for like one or two things, but it isn't a particularly spectacular place. But I think it was chosen because it's uh, a nondescript place you might end up passing through. Um and in this case passing mm-hmm. through and not leaving. But uh that's the idea behind it, yeah. What you said about uh not wanting to write something that sort of has a really fine point on it this is what this movie's about this is what we're trying to lead you towards i think applies terrifically to taxi driver Mm -hmm. i I was reading a lot of old reviews of of the film uh as i was going through this novelization and it seems like an initial complaint was just what is this thing saying i recognize that there are ideas swimming around here what is it what is it sort of leading to there was a lot of frustration around the idea that it was amorphous or that uh, it wasn't drawing a conclusion that could be easily digested. Um, what's your relationship going into reading this novelization, which you suggested? I frankly didn't know existed. Uh, it, what's your relationship to this film and, and uh, sort of what does Taxi Driver mean to you? Well, I think it's fascinating you picked up on that, actually. Um, Taxi Driver was a film I saw probably when I was 17 or 18. And I think uh, I was probably a bit too young to fully appreciate it. And I think a lot of people go into it like I did, expecting it to have more of a thriller element, expecting it to have a sense that the hero was going to, you know, through facing a number of troubles, come up good, solve a mystery, save somebody, kill a load of bad guys. And instead, what I was faced with was a descent into madness, turmoil, uh, a purgatorial world, um, or, you know, or a vision of hell, which this character journeys through and is trying to make sense of and tries to find a way out by doing some things that are pretty terrible. Uh, and uh, what I sort of like about what you were talking about there was this idea that we don't really know you know what the point is and i think in the film i was you know watched the film again recently i had a look at the screenplay again and obviously i've I've sort of gone over the novelization a couple of times and i think there's sort of distinct ways and different ways of looking at this but when you get to the final film i think what's really interesting is scorsese has gone using the trader script has actually pulled out even more of those explainers 
and try to present something where it's not really clear, for example, why Travis is taking Betsy to the porno cinema, what he expects to happen. And the fact is, I think he doesn't really know why he's doing it. Uh, he can't mm-hmm. really you know, deal with it. But, but I think we're not even sort of clear why it might be that he's doing that. And certainly the explainer we're given isn't very clear why Betsy even agrees to go with him to the cinema in the first place. Or go on a date, go out on a date with him in the first place. Why he picks Palatine as his, you know, the object of his, um, you know, his violent act at first. All these things and why at the end he, you know, has this, this it, the swivel, this turn where things, things seem to be going in a completely unexpected direction for at the end. Why all these things happen aren't really clear and they're not particularly clear in the script. I think they're even less clear in the film. And I think the novelization gives an even sort of a very different spin on all those things again. It's both more clear and less clear in a way. So I think this is, this is a, a really fascinating thing about the film that you hit upon there. Hannah Blackman, you have had an experience that almost no one in, on planet Earth has had, which is you read this novelization before watching the film oh ever. Yeah. I had not seen the film at all, period, until yesterday. <laughs> um, it had just sort of like never come to me. And then, you know, eventually there's all the talk about Taxi Driver that like people who really connect to it are like sick puppies. <laughs> and um, it's one of those like movies that people with like a shallow concept of like the good guy hero loner thing really latch on to. Um, and so I was like, cool, I don't really need this in my life. And so I never hunted it down either. Like, not like it's hard to access or whatever, but I had never seen it. And indeed, then here we are. I read the novel first and I, then I watched the movie and they, there's so many surprises in the direction that it goes um, that just to like jump into it story-wise, the fact that Travis like gets away with everything essentially right that the end of the story he is a hero he's doing fine he's like kind of gotten himself back into a place of the closest version of mental health he has we think sort of Mm -hmm. um was just unbelievably shocking to me local hero i mean not just not just his own mental health he's like beloved yeah uh, to turn the page in the book from what I was sure was essentially the end of the book of like, well, he will die or go to prison forever for, or something. And to be like, no, he's loose, free, a local hero doing great. And Betsy's like, oh, OK, um, was just like the most surprising possible outcome for me. So there was I had not only not seen it, but had not really learned what happens in it at all. And I had a very, I think, as you say, unique experience with it. I liked it. I, I think the book is really good. I found it super yeah. compelling, really engaging, and a sort of view into that character that I think the movie is doing something different with. And I was glad to have the sort of interior churnings. I'm shocked that you could understand what was happening in the story based on this novelization, which I love, by the way. I thought it was great. <laughs> but <clears throat> this, I mean, how to even describe to the listener, obviously we'll hit some passages, but how to even describe the way in which information is conveyed in this novelization, you say it's nice to have the interiority. All you have is the interiority. It's a book of just a mind being like, oh, I'm horny, but I also hate people who have sex, but also I itch a little. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I just found it like, from the first moment, the, the novelization is just like, 
here's somebody that like I was curious about. And I was curious about where his little brain was going to rattle to. And I didn't like I found the movie a little slow, like meandering. I understand that's the point. But the, the middle 40, I was like, we can tighten this up a little for me. <laughs> the book is 100. We also knew where it was pages. going. <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah. The book is 150 pages. It's really tight. And so at every page, I was like, there's something here that is compelling to me and I'm curious about and I want to see how it pays off. And not all of it does. Also, the sequence of events is slightly different in the novelization in a way that like felt like a cleaner sort of line for me. Um, so I was just like along for the roller coaster. It was a great time. Julio, as someone who loves this movie, has loved it for a long time, and, and I, think, I, I relate to that experience, by the way, of having seen it too young. And being like, what is, what are movies? What are they supposed to do? I don't, <laughs> this one's I, what it's doing is different. Having a, that pre-existing relationship, what, uh, what did the novelization do for you? I mean, uh, how did you feel about its interpretation of the text? Um, I feel it, it, you know, my, my journey through the novel was going to be fundamentally different from Hannah's in that I had Robert De Niro's voice in my head in giving the particular delivery that he gives in the film, which I haven't seen the film yes. for maybe 10 years since I watched it a few days ago, but I still got the delivery in my head. And so I'm reading it with him. I'm reading it with his infectious smile, which I think is one of the most incredible things about the film is the smile that he gives that character and his sweetness and genuineness. So, so I'm putting those things into the book as I'm reading them, which I'm sure Hannah you know, probably did to some extent anyway, because Robert De Niro is on the cover and we all know what he sounds like. But it did colour the film, colour the novel, reading it somewhat differently. But really what I was sort of astounded by was how Richard Ellman really used language and took risks with using language. I mean, it's a hell of a risky piece of writing to sort of have little flights of fantasy beat poetry about Hitler in your in your stream of consciousness uh, journey through Travis Bickle's mind. I mean, there's all sorts of things peppered in there where I was thinking, this isn't in the film. Where's this come from? I mean, there was so much of Richard Elman, I imagine, sort of anecdotes and, and life, things that he pulled, and he's stuck it into the novel, and he's obviously put it through a vernacular that he's created for Travis to a certain extent. And I think it's quite risky because he's kind of stretching that vernacular, he's stretching that voice all the time and sort of trying different things with it. Um, and it, it gets to the point where I was reading it thinking, is this good? Is this, has he taken it too far? Is he risking it too much? And I was thinking, no, I'm buying this. I get it. This is a, a mind which is coming apart at the seams, but also it's kind of like my mind, apart from the... You know, <laughs> I haven't made the final decision to go out and kill anyone. But, you know, my mind goes there and all, 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 all those things that are going through his mind are sort of like the kind of things that I find going through my mind. And, and, and just to say one, one other thing about that, that you start getting to this weird place with it where you think, well, is this his journal? No, it's not his journal because he talks about writing his journal and we get pieces of his journal. But then he takes it back a step and says, this is what I was writing in my journal. And then we get a stuff yes. that's just the fragments of his mind. We're just getting bits and pieces here of stuff that's going on in his head and weird associations he's making. So it's really a disorientating experience uh, reading this book and going on this journey with this guy. And also just sort of some of the weird 
stuff he's putting in there about the woman in the back of the cab with the, the tube, which I, I don't want to describe in detail. But <laughs> Yeah, this is an important thing to, to highlight for the listener, which is if you have not read this book, many novelizations engage with a character's interiority. It's the word we say the most on the podcast, interiority. We are a loose coalition of interiority enthusiasts. <laughs> but this book is in the first person, and it is so squarely limited to Travis Bickle's head that his thoughts are, you know, lacking punctuation at times. He'll switch from one thought to another, then back to the first, and there will just be no periods or anything. It's just a single run-on sentence. At one point, he gets a dirty limerick stuck in his head that I think he made up, and it'll just sort of puncture through other things are happening and suddenly we're just hearing the limerick again so this is like a a radical act of empathy the writing of this book in a way that i I mean hannah i assume you would agree we just have not seen anything on this level before no this is like taking place in a character so strongly like we've read a couple novelizations in the first person and none of them are like this I love it, though. Like, I wish that more novelizations were like this. It is so fascinating to watch an author be like, okay, how would this guy write and think and experience the world in ways, like, towards the end when it he's, like, really in the worst version of himself, the writing just mm-hmm. falls apart completely. And you, it's, like, the shootout at the end is very, very hard to follow as it would be <laughs> if you were experiencing it. Yeah. Um, it's just like, you know, you said in our opener, it's, like, impressionist. It's super impressionistic. and you get the idea, like, cool, you are being shot at, you're in pain, it's confusing, it's awful, like, what are you going to do in this moment? Um, And I really appreciate the, like, artistic swing. And, as you were saying, like, this unbelievable amount of empathy, like, I, watching the movie, I mean, having read the book, so, uh, but watching the movie, I was like, I like De Niro, he's interesting, there's something actively sinister about him, Yes. Um, And reading the novelization, I was like, I really feel for this person who is not well. Like, clearly he is a dangerous person, but I, coming at it from very much his experience, I was like, I'm sad for him. I feel mostly sadness for this person, as opposed to watching the movie, I'm consistently concerned for the people around him. A very different experience with the character, for me, anyway. This is something that I... I really felt just watching the movie before I even started the novelization. I rewatched the movie also probably for the first time in 10 years. And I thought like, oh, it's not super apparent for a lot of the runtime how hopelessly lost he is. Like I I felt like once I had finished the film, I was like, oh, I did not have enough empathy for this character starting out. Because I was seeing him as this guy actively making choices that were sort of odd, and then eventually he's made so many of them that the momentum is sort of irresistible. But you get to the end of the film where things go so far off the rails, or you just read any of the novelization, and it's like, no, this is a story about post-traumatic stress disorder to the degree where, like, he is like a runaway train at the beginning of this. And so desperate for human contact, like, so desperate to be normal. I mean, there's that line in the movie, right, where he's like, I don't really condone people being out on their own. I think I think it, it's a good thing to participate in society. And I think he really wants that. And the book 
shows us so clearly from like page one that he's just lost. He would need such a radical act of kindness to be brought back into society. Something he could never expect like a stranger to extend to you. I'm kind of rambling. Let's get back to the period thing. What the fuck? So we start the book off. We're on like page one. And I think to cement how he sees all of New York City as this cesspool of filth, we get some anecdotes about what is going on in his cab that he detests or around his cab that he detests. And it says, uh, do, 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 do. The guy leaves me and I get picked up by a very pretty young woman. Says she wants to go up near Columbia University. Through the park, driver. Well, we're going down along by the reservoir. When I look into my rearview mirror, and I see she has her feet up inside the stirrups, with her legs spread, and she is sticking herself with this long glass tube in the hot spot. I asked what's going on, and she explains, No trouble, driver. No problems. She told me she was extracting her blood. Seems like she did this every month, so she wouldn't have to have her period. Her boyfriend liked her better that way, and she said she had more control over her body. Well, she said she was going up to see her boyfriend tonight and was staying over, and she'd almost forgotten. She wanted to surprise him that way again, as usual. Well, we got up to an address on Morningside Drive, and she wanted me to come upstairs with her. Said her boyfriend wouldn't be home for quite a while yet. Would I not come up? She would show me how it worked. So forward. Just like animals. All too many of them. I suppose I would have said, yes, maybe... So, if not for that boyfriend. Also, I like to think that they would come to my place, and my place was a mess. Really pretty awful. Th- there's so much in here. This is, this is operating on so many levels. It, it, it's showing how Travis sees everything around him as sinful. He, like, hates everyone around him. At the same time, he pities this woman for having to do this. For, like, existing in a system where a man would do this to her. He also sexually desires her and hates her for being sexually desirable or specifically sexually forward. It's this brilliant bit of writing by Elman where he's like, let's just point out every contradiction in Travis in one anecdote. And also, like, what a horrifying thing conceptually. Like, not only does Travis think the world is gross, but it is gross, actually. That's a gross crazy thing to do period let alone in the back of someone's cab mm-hmm. like i don't think he's 100 wrong about how he's viewing that experience i'll say one thing on a, I, I i thought your analysis was 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 brilliant actually really good and, and really um i think what the book's about and actually what travis is about uh but it, it's such a weird anecdote and that and yet the book is full of things like that and i and i i was just reading about richard Elman. And one of the things he was involved in in his life was a uh, he was an unwilling participant in a sex cult. Huh? Um, where he <laughs> well, there's a, there's a very good book that he wrote, which I've sort of gone through called Name Dropping, and it's his literary memoirs, and it's mostly literary figures that he knew, like Hunter S. Thompson, uh, uh, who he's he's got not a good word to say about quite a lot of people, including Hunter S. Thompson. But he's got a good word to say about some people. Um, but part of it is about his he uh, his he and his wife separated, and he felt compelled to. He was sort of pressurized by his wife and his wife's psychotherapist figure called Saul B. Newton to sort of join their uh, sex cult uh, 
partner swapping situation where this guy was psychoanalyzing people and saying, you know, I really think you should partner with this person and have a child with them. And, and, and Saul B. Newton was pushing Richard Ellman into these situations in an attempt to sort of stay connected to his daughter. He, and that's, that's his excuse anyway. He was participating in this, this sex endeavor. And I, was read, I read the novel and then I had a look at this book, Name Dropping, and I thought, you know, there's quite a lot of Richard Ellman's things that he's seen in life that I think he's stuck into this book, you know. And I, I read that he, well, actually I heard him talking about that he wrote the book, this novel in a month, the taxi driver novel in a month, and he read it by dictation, wrote it by dictation, sorry. And I get the feeling that he was just pulling things from his experience, things he'd heard about New York, thing, you know, things that he'd come across, things that people were doing, and he was cramming them into this book and fashioning it into this narrative as he went along. Um, and it's sort of a weird, for me, after having read about Richard Elman, it's, it's kind of a weird view into his version of Travis Bickle's mind, which is very, very compelling. But also, I kept thinking, this is Richard Elman's mind. This is, this is, you know, he came up with this stuff or he saw it and he mm-hmm. decided to put in this book. And I couldn't, couldn't help think of, the, you know, this, this woman with the tube and, and think this is something that he must have come across at some point, you know, in, in, in this mad journey through this, this sex cult, perhaps. What, it, the sex cult thing. Hold on a second. This is now a, a name dropping podcast hosted by Julio, <laughs> guests Andrew and Hannah. The. It, it, how did he exit that situation? That feels like key. Like, was he... Did, first of all, did he have a wife and child from the cult? No. His wife, um, as I understand it, um, and I've, you know, read this book once and I wouldn't want to, um, you know, libel anybody while I was... I mean, he's long gone. But uh, uh, my understanding was his wife, he and his wife were separated. His wife was involved with the leader of this group, uh, which he, he describes as a cult. And the leader was... Uh, a psychotherapist of sorts and Richard Elman was involved in this in you know was having uh, re- sexual relationships with a number of the women in the group and this guy Saul B Newton was saying you know you should go with this woman and you should have a child with her and at this point I think he began to resist it increasingly you know that he began to think this is right I'm not gonna have a child I'm, I've already got one child and I don't get a seer enough and I can you know I'm it isn't going well. I don't want another child with someone that I'm, I don't particularly get on with. And this guy, Saul B. Newton, was using these things to exert control over people, to, you know, you know possibly to blackmail, who knows. And I, the final part of that book of the, um, the memoir is him going to see an off-Broadway show where Saul B. Newton and his acolytes performed a very, very bad kind of, um, you know, review show uh you you know spouting his <laughs> philosophies and he was sitting there with his new girlfriend thinking my god why did i ever listen to this guy he's you know he's horrible and a fraud um and it's 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 a you don't really get enough of it to sort of fully understand what was going on but this guy saul b newton has a wikipedia page and uh, there's stuff written about him he w- wasn't just known to richard ellman so you can look him up that is fascinating because it really feels like a, a a direct line of like that's that situation must have caused Elman to have a very weird relationship to his own ideas of like attraction, sexuality, which it, it, to go back to Hannah's point about the the period tube, the the menstrual tube, it's it's not I, I didn't mean to suggest that it's weird that he finds it weird, Hannah. <laughs> rather rather that 
it's weird that he has that very vivid experience and, and doesn't have a hard stance on it. He really is like, that's disgusting. I hate her for it. I hate the guy for making her do it. I also want her and care for her, but I despise her because of that. I think that anecdote really reveals that Travis is like operating uh, in a constant state of like being of two or more minds. Yeah, I agree. I think I also would say um, that oftentimes like this concept of like incels, whatever, dudes who are like, fuck women for not wanting to fuck me, which is part of his deal to an extent, especially mm-hmm. with Betsy. Definitely. Um, this particular anecdote is the sort of thing where he's like, that's disgusting, and I hate that you do it, and I think he's right. <laughs> like, that is not, he's not coming mm-hmm. out of, like, this, like, um, you know, incel mindset of, like, how dare this woman do this thing and not make me part of it. I think he is right to be like, why would you do that to yourself? Why are you putting it near me? Um, that, uh, the, the, the difficulty of his character is that New York City in the 70s is a gross, horrible, miserable place. It's very hard to make a safe living there. He is experiencing all of that. Like, he is both coming at it from a perspective that is dangerous and violent and having a very reasonable response to the world he's living in at that time period coming out of his experiences. And that's, I find, like, very, very interesting about the character. Like, if he was just a guy who was like, fuck this woman, you wouldn't be interested in him at all. He's just a piece of shit. And that's not the case. He has like so many more little layers and experiences um, that are like relatively valid. Uh, he's just not handling them well. Is that? I think like we we agree, right? We're definitely agreeing. Yeah, I, okay. I think okay. his I think his contradictions contain really noble personalities. There just seem to be. I mean, I don't mean to suggest he actually has like multiple personalities, but like it. it, it I think he has very valid and defensible viewpoints he just also has voices in his head saying like the exact opposite of them i mean as do we all right (laughs) i'm morally unimpeachable right i know you are i know you're a perfect human being um but this idea that like your first response to something is not really who you are it's your Mm -hmm. second response of like okay you have an immediate response of like that's disgusting and then if your second response is like okay but it's not my business what that woman does with her body (laughs) um that's really what speaks to your character and travis like doesn't always have the second step he like lives really much in like his first reactions and lets those guide him to be like how do i get betsy out of the thrall of this political figure who is better than me and sexier than me and smarter than me and she's really entranced by him i guess i'll kill him and not only will i will that get me the girl but it'll give me a place in history and these are all good things and i'm gonna follow that impulse that like the secondary impulse of like nope that's not gonna do it that's the wrong thing to do it will obviously turn her off um just doesn't come generally I disagree with a lot of your interpretation of, like, why things happen in this movie I'm discovering, (laughs) but I think that that... I think it probably comes from me reading the book first, which really does, I think, have a sort of, like, not a linear plot, but a lot of things have more cause and effect in them, I felt, than the movie does. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I think what Elman was trying to do was actually take something that he felt probably wasn't psychologically didn't have quite enough psychological justification and was creating bridges 
in a very sophisticated way. I think it's interesting you talk about Betsy. There's one bit where he calls her Betsy Palatine in mm-hmm. you know two thirds of the way through the book, and I was like, oh, hang on, that's um, that is like the kind of that's what he's thinking to a certain extent. You know that 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 there's the I mean I think Schrader describes it as Palatine's a father figure to her that he has to kill in Schrader's mind, whereas in in uh, the description you just gave, it's more of a sort of a, a lover figure. All those things are kind of confused in the film anyway. But I think, I think the, or the, the book as well, but I think that Elman was trying to create those bridges. Yeah, I mean, his artistry is that I, I mean, I laid it out sort of like blah, blah, blah. The book isn't doing any of the ABC of it. I'm pulling it out of there but the art of the book is that it's really in the background amorphous nebulous the reasoning the the through line is sort of happening without your without it being explained to you in any sort of explicit way which i really like it's exciting (laughs) to not just be spoon-fed as is generally the case andrew you look concerned no i this is just so many thoughts i have on this it's i feel like the book actively changes a lot of things about the movie. And so the one that comes to mind is like when he kicks the TV over. Also a scene that like I didn't realize was like quite so important when I was reading it um, and didn't really put a bookmark on it. And in hindsight, I'm like, okay, that's a that's a one of those things. Okay, it's the beginning of a chapter called Mid-Afternoon Melodrama. It was boring a lot of the time, but it didn't seem that way to me then. I don't know whether I knew what it was to be bored. There was this game I used to play when I watched TV. I'd be wearing all my guns, and I'd be watching the TV with my feet up on that crate. And as the people in the little box hassled each other, I would sort of take the heel out of my boots and sort of rock that crate slowly back and forth to see how far it would tip over before following. Falling. It was all a question of balance, I guess. A teeter-tottering kind of thing. This beautiful young man would be talking to the beautiful young woman very earnestly about their relationship, in quotes, and how she had hurt him, maybe, and my heels would be on the melon crate rocking it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, every time just a little bit more, until one day the inevitable happened, and the crate tipped backwards, and that TV went crashing to the floor, and there was a short, smelly flash, and everything turned white like a cloud, and the box was all jagged and broken glass. Dead knobs. That image had fled. Damn, I said to myself. Damn, I said to myself. Damn, damn. That image had fled. There wasn't even anything to watch on TV anymore. That's actually that whole chapter. So, the, in the, the, the key difference here, for me, is that in the book, he's like, I have fun tipping my TV over to see if it'll fall. I feel like we all have little games like that with, with less expensive objects. And... He's talking about there being a relationship on TV. In the movie, it's a Palatine ad. My reading on this, I, I mean, I, I, it seems, if, if Paul Schrader disagrees with me, it seems I'm just empirically wrong. But my reading on this situation was that he was watching an ad with Palatine, and he, Palatine, in the ad, is like advocating for the little guy. Basically going like, I am going to like help the impoverished of New York City, which is the exact opposite of what Travis wants to hear. He wants the filth cleaned up. He wants, it is, if, he, if only subconsciously at this point, he wants people to go into brothels and shoot them up. And so 
He gets essentially the exact opposite of what his beliefs are, and he hasn't taken any time to actually examine what Palatine believes, so he's just been assuming that it's the same as him, which is like in that scene in the taxi where he's like talking to Palatine. He's like, yeah, my favorite thing about politics is how you're going to get rid of them all. The pores And Palatine's like, yeah, okay, man. <laughs> I think he kind of realizes that Palatine stands for something completely different than his own beliefs in that moment. And I actually thought that was the motivation for him trying to kill Palatine. I didn't have it so concretely tied to Betsy, aside from the fact that Betsy puts Palatine on his radar. Fascinating. I think, I think both of us are putting more intent behind the act of murdering Palatine than is actually there. Like, there's a, there's a section where he really is like, ah, that's what I'm going to do. And I, this TV thing, sorry, just to circle around it. Um, the end of that chapter, he's like, there wasn't even anything on TV anymore. Like, he has been putting off doing anything because he has the action of like, well, I watch TV and that's a thing I do. And yes. then he can't do that anymore. And it's like, well, it's time to go do something. Uh, and if I can't watch TV, I guess I'll shoot a man. Um, and it feels really exactly as meaningful as that. Like, it's not justified. It's not really based on anything. It's vaguely tied to Betsy. It's vaguely tied to whatever his political concept of cleaning up the streets is. But really, it's just a thing to do, to put his <laughs> energy into, because he just doesn't understand how else to navigate or, like, use himself. Julio, why does Travis Bickle try to kill Palatine? Um... It's, I think it's like a million dollar question and I, I feel that when I'm watching the film or reading the book, I enter a place of where I'm, my roof tile is sliding over Travis's roof tile and I can, I can kind of get what he's doing and it seems to be part of a journey that I can't fully understand but seems to be the logical conclusion of where he's going it's a perverse logic but i feel that he's being driven to it by you know mental building blocks that he doesn't quite get hold of and i feel pulled along with him and i don't i feel slightly cheap sort of putting it in freudian analysis and saying you know palatine is the father figure that he wants to kill and then betsy will you know see him as the father figure or pay attention to him much as you know because taxi driver we know famously inspired a, a political assassination attempt. John Hinckley tried to kill Ron Reagan because he was obsessed with Jodie Foster. We have to circle back to that. By the okay, way. we'll come back to that. But I do feel that this, this, this desire to arm yourself uh, with secret weapons is a very, you know, comes from quite an adolescent you know, place of wanting to be in control of the world, of wanting to change things and make things your way. And this guy that everybody's looking up to, that actually saying some quite sensible things, but fuck him. You know, I'm going to show everybody how horrible the world is. And what I feel is happening in Trader's script and is actually happening in, in the novel and is happening in the film, although it's less clear, is that Travis is trying to say to everybody, don't you see the hell that is in front of you? You don't get it. Have you seen this girl? She's 12 years old and she's a prostitute and then there's these uh, and stuff that's in trader script and also in the book that you don't really see in the film on the tv and i think the tv is really important to is all these teeny boppers in this sophisticated pop world but the tv's showing their their crotches and their their you know teenage bodies and travis is kind of just almost like a sort of 
a less eloquent Charles Manson, although in the book he's quite eloquent, is trying to say, don't you see how all corrupt and venal and pornographic the world is? And I'm going to bring it all crashing down. Not too dissimilar from Alan Moore's Rorschach in that regard, although he has a strong sense of justice about him that's, um, you know, somewhat different from mine. But, um, you know, but, the, but there's this desire to crash and destroy, I think. And um, in the film, what really speaks to that is the soundtrack, you know, the, the, the brass and the drum beats and things which really, for me, tie into that. I'd completely forgotten the soundtrack. Just a, such an abrasive start to the movie. Yeah. Just like, which I think is great because it, it, in the way that the book, the text of the book hits you, and you're like, what? What kind of authorial voice is this? Holy mm-hmm. shit! And it really like makes you go, oh, this is like a, a disturbed mind or an aching mind. Disturbed has such a connotation of he's in the wrong, but uh, that the the soundtrack really accomplishes a similar thing, where you're like, if if this is to represent what is happening internally to this man. It's such a great way to put us off kilter and go like, even though we're not in his head in the way that the text of a book puts us, I'm aware that this is an unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. It also has some like very pretty jazz in it. Like that score is like so complicated. It's the like love theme is so good. Yeah, really beautiful stuff. But who puts who puts all this brass and this drums, and then has a harp going over the top of it? It's such a ballsy move. Um, and it, to me, really, along with, I mean, we, could, we don't want to spend the whole time talking about the film, but that with De Niro's performance, that score and the script, for me, produces a very weird alchemy. And I don't fully understand what's going on in the film. And so your question and your questions about why does Travis choose Palatine is, for me, in, in the middle of this alchemical space where strange these disparate elements are clashing together quite magically and something quite dangerous is coming out of it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it takes a huge amount of time to realize in the film what Travis is doing is planning to assassinate Palantine. Like, the book makes it pretty explicit pretty early that, like, that's his plan. He, like, talks a lot about, um, like, other assassins and how he's like, but I'm going to do a better job than that because I'm more real than they were which I don't fully understand and think is a fascinating concept. But, like, let me see. Here it is. Um, because when you think of all those other guys, Oswald and Booth and Artie Bremer, the lot, if, if it's one thing about them, marks them out as real losers, is that they get a little unreal sometimes. Which I don't, I, like, can't quite wrap my head around what he could possibly mean by that. Coupled with how he talks about how, like, the guns make him a real boy, basically. But, like, the weight of them, the ability of them to impact other people is what makes him real. Like, what? I don't know. It's just fascinating. And I, I can't speak to what it means. I don't know. But it's a thing that I've been churning on for the past few days. I'm also, like, largely interested in political assassins. So that's a thing that I also didn't really know was in Taxi Driver that caught my interest. I- I'm doing a thing now where I'm taking a bit of existing criticism, which was, like, a Reddit comment. And I'm doing a little plus one on it. Because I was reading this this bit of Reddit analysis that I thought was really interesting, Mm -hmm. which basically concerned itself with how his relationship to guns and the scene, the famous scene in which he's practicing in the mirror is all about how the gun itself is sort of less important than like the pose you have to make when you fire it. And that Mm -hmm. 
the the way in which you choose to pose in order to shoot is its own statement and articulation, whether it be of like masculinity, control, whatever. And and it was an interesting read on how that the reason that scene is in there of him practicing in the mirror is because he's discovering a language. It's not just like an exercise of ego. It's like when I when I assert power, do I look like this? Do I look like this? Which is cool. My little punch up on this, it really got me thinking, is what is the significance of the fact that he is creating a system in which that instrument of articulation, the gun, instead of being an active part of his assault, is a thing delivered into his hand. It's something I keep thinking about. Like, he basically wants to be this guy who doesn't have a gun in many ways. He wants to be, like, this dateable guy that fits into society and can pal around with Palatine in the cab and can date Betsy, but he also wants to be a guy that doesn't have to pretend when it comes to, like, a case where he's asserting force. He wants, he wants the, the, the instrument, the weapon, to be, like, effortlessly delivered into his hand, not something that he needs to, like, pick up and sort of assimilate. This is not a fully formed thought. It's just something I've been, that's been cooking this morning. Yeah, my unfully formed thought on this is that he, the first gun he wants is a Magnum 44, which is the Dirty Harry gun. And I've just, Andrew knows, been watching the Dirty Harrys, where Dirty Harry is- The biggest gun ever made. The biggest gun. It's a dick. It's very sexy. Scientists can't explain it. It is bigger than machine guns, even (laughs) though it's smaller. It's a crazy ass gun. And the the way the movie looks at that Magnum the first time, it just keeps going. It's so long. The barrel on that thing is so unbelievably long. Um, And that what Travis wants to do is Dirty Harry stuff, is to like be a sexy guy who shoots people and saves people and that's hot and good. And he doesn't understand like he's not, A, that's fiction, right? And B, he's not Clint Eastwood who can do those things, who can pull off Mm -hmm. the balance of being sexy and dateable and a guy who shoots people in the street. That's the unformed thought that I kept spinning around on these guns is like, he wants the Magnum, I think partially because it's this big dick of a gun. It's that. And then ends up using the tiniest gun, buys four guns of varying sizes. And at the end of the day, it's the little one that, as you say, just like he creates the contraption that allows it to appear when he needs it and that's the gun that he ends up relying on the most and then i mean the way there's a part in the book where he has cut his hair into that really abrasive mohawk where he's like it looks horrible and i hate it it's ugly but it's important (laughs) that i look this way for this moment um and i really appreciated that touch because i do think it's an awful look on bob de niro and it makes really him, bad. it changes him from being, I mean, and this is the point, of course, with his like cute little mop of hair, he's very harmless and adorable and charming. I can see why Betsy goes out with him. He's cute. Then she realizes <laughs> he's fucking weird um, and wants nothing to do with him. Totally understand that. The moment he cuts his hair, even into like the middle cut, which is like spiky and, but I, I genuinely was like, oh, it's so nice to learn that that's like a conscious choice to change his appearance in a way that is like unpleasant. Like, he's, like, it's stupid for his goal, but, like, on purpose. I had to cut it that way to get down to business, really take care of business, but I didn't like being seen by Betsy looking so very unattractive, you know? So, Julia, when you first reached out to me, your 
uh, you, you sent me a lot of thoughts or a lot of vague thoughts that I'm really excited to dig into here about, I, I think, what you feel like the iconography of the film is and, and like ways in which it's abused. And I must assume, I must assume that you were talking about this mirror scene, right? No. What? I mean, yeah, but it's not what interests me as much as other stuff, which I'm probably now going to go down a very nebulous corridor. But when I was at university in the 1990s, there was this fashion for posters of De Niro with the mohawk, which interestingly mm-hmm. is not in the script or the book to the same degree, which we can talk about as well. But he has the full mohawk, and he has the eyes, the, 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 the stare of a, uh, a crazed man. And he often has the two guns outstretched, or he's got the, the gun finger to his head. And there were a lot of um, photographic reproductions of this poster. And you still see it now in memes, in posters, and all sorts. And for me, this is, um, it's almost like a, a religious sacrilege. In the the film was created to be watched at you know twenty four frames a second. That that those particular scenes for me really when they're extracted from the film to sell the film or to sell something really are sort of opening. They're they're, they're showing something that I think shouldn't really be seen outside of that context because what the filmmakers did and what De Niro did there for me is so on the nose it's so terrifying the first time you see it or at least it was when I saw it that I instinctively begin to sort of shiver when I when I see it used like that and you know it's probably a bit too much of a sort of cliche to bang on about Scorsese being a religious filmmaker but for me there is something really sacred about those moments and there is something for me, very precious about people's sort of mental health when it's at that, you know, most extreme, that you're kind of showing it to be cool because it isn't cool at all. It's fucking terrifying. <laughs> and I would look at, I'd look at this and just think, you guys don't get the film at all. This is, it's not even like a moral thing. It's just like a taste thing. It's like, what are you doing? You know, I don't want, I don't want to see it. And interestingly, I think this ties back, and I, you, we can talk about that, I'd love to talk about that, but also it ties back to the, the idea of novelizations. that when this film first came out, you couldn't extract scenes from it, you couldn't extract stills from it, because it was only at the cinemas, and then occasionally be on some fuzzy TV screen, cut down with adverts in between, maybe, although I don't think Taxi Driver rushed to afternoon TV very quickly, but it was, <laughs> you know, the novelization was another way to experience the film. Uh, and, and one of the few ways to experience the film, or the only ways to experience the film, when you didn't have the um, film in front of you. Um, and so I, I think there's a sort of interesting sort of um, connection to the novelization there. Um, as a more genuine... I, mean, I, I don't... By the way, I don't think Schrader... I saw a comment on Facebook. He doesn't like the novelization, by the way, so we can... Um, oh. He makes a very Aww. brief comment about it on Facebook. Um and I think, and Elman, interestingly, didn't like, he claims not to have liked the film, because I heard an interview with him, he claims not to like the film. But I think for me, it's more of a great gen- guy to do the novelization. Yeah. Someone that well, doesn't like your film. I mean, kind of important to note that it is based on the screenplay, not based on the film. 
He yeah, he didn't like, see the film. That's a very clear difference. Yeah. He t- he he was yeah. on set a couple of times. He says. So he, I, I think he, he, and you can, I, I think if you close read, you can see what he saw prior to, to writing um, and what changes were I don't made. think we've ever seen a quote to this effect. I, I, oh, like, okay. I'm, not, I'm not questioning your source. I'm saying in all of our time covering novelizations, yeah. I don't think we've ever seen a novelizationist say, I didn't like the way the movie turned out. It's probably yeah. true of a lot of them. Yeah, like, yeah, I bet yeah. the Revenge of the Sith guy was like, my book is better. But, <laughs> but it, it's crazy. That someone who is signing on to novelize a movie would be like, hey, ultimately, I nailed it. They didn't. Am I right? Yeah, he, he says he didn't recognize New York in the film. As I lived in New York for 10 years, and I know that the New York I lived in is not the New York of the 70s. Yeah. I did not recognize New York City. Like, There's enough buildings and cross streets and places that still exist that I spent a lot of the movie being like, where are we? Uh-huh. Like, Interesting. geographically, where are we right now? Yeah. Which is maybe part of the point, how unmoored he is, how, like, wandering he is, mm-hmm. that he really is all over the place, and you never, he barely knows where he is when he's picking people up and dropping them off. It's so, you know, fluid. But, eh, maybe that's a fair point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's, I, I love New York. I've not been there long enough to, to, to sort of make any claims about it. I think, um... Just sort of, sort of go back to, to, to my initial point about the, that, the ending of the film. But I just remember it having a... Because of the way Scorsese is manipulating the film. And when I was talking about... There's an alchemical uh, feeling for me. And I'll talk about one final moment in the film, which I don't know if you guys recognise. It's a theory that I hold and no one else holds. And I don't know if it's true. But it, for me, it's true. That... You've gone through what I think is this, the, the, the weird sort of the explosion of violence and Scorsese's playing with the film speeds and he's, he's, he's altered the colours, he's treated the film. And then we go back to normality and Betsy gets into Travis's cab and then, you know, she ends the journey, Travis goes off and briefly there's those flashes in the mirror. Yeah. Thing, and, and we see two people in the mirror in my version. We see Robert De Niro, and then the mirror swivels round, or the image swivels round. And for a second, I think, look at it again, I think you see Martin Scorsese's face in the mirror for the briefest of seconds, and then it goes away again. And if it isn't Martin Scorsese's face, you can't tell that it isn't, is my argument. And, <laughs> and, and, and that is the Martin Scorsese who sat in the back of the taxi. He says, you know, have you seen what a forty-four Magnum can do? You know, it's that guy, it's the devil, it's the, the, the nadir of the experience. Is that, 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 that monster that sits within Travis um, is about to potentially break out again or could break out again. It's a warning sign. And so that whole ending of the film for me is, is really creepy. It's magical. And I don't like the way that it's, um, it's used in popular media or culture to sort of signify, you know, I'm going crazy tonight. Or whatever. That whole thing that is so frustrating that I feel like comes up in every anti-hero whatever is like when people sort of idolize what you're saying, like a a moment from a piece (laughs) of fiction where someone's being like very sad and pathetic and rotted and then it becomes a poster of like, say hello to my little friend and you're like, he died three <laughs> seconds after that, face yeah. down. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But like, 
the, the, those people, I, I, this is such a, 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 a asshole thing to say, but like those people who like idolize like stills of like, you know, uh, uh, Michael Corleone or Tony Soprano or like, you know, like stuff from like Breaking Bad or whatever. They don't like movies, right? Because mm-hmm. like, if, if you really follow that to their, to its logical endpoint, they must be not paying attention to so much stuff that happens on screen that is really blatantly like this man is in a sad place. Yeah. He's doing really abusive stuff to like his family or his girlfriend or whatever. They must be just not paying attention to so much of that so that they can receive an image in a film or in a TV show where they're like, Tony Soprano looks really cool with that gun. Wow. Yeah. Were they sitting there for the other 44 minutes of the episode going, this is so boring. Why is he still talking to his daughter? What, like, I, I don't understand that um, type of person at all because they must be either not engaging with it. They must literally just own the poster and be like, I bet Travis Bickle is cool. Or they must be watching these things and for 80% of the runtime going, oh, this is the bad stuff, but I think it gets shooty. I think there's also a level of if you are a sad, unhappy, unwell person. I mean, this has been discussed in the world, but like you look at other sad, unwell people in media and are like, well, I relate to that person and I'm not a fucking loser. I cannot engage with the idea that I could be a sad loser. So if this guy is cool, I am cool. And I'm looking for that validation, right? That's Mm -hmm. the danger of some of this stuff too. Like that's, I'm not saying anything new here. But to say like, it's not that they're not engaging with it. They're just engaging with it in a way that is like twisted and wrong. (laughs) Right. Which validates their own life experience and makes them feel, like, good. Um, instead of actually taking what the movie or whatever has to offer, which is, these people are sad and unwell. So, like, in a situation where, like, a wife in a movie is like, you're doing evil things, I don't like it. These people are going, women do what be What an nags. awful nag. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. I think so. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I didn't. Correct me here, I didn't watch Breaking Bad, but it seems like the complaints with the wife on that show is that she's like, hey, stop cooking meth. And everyone's yeah. like, hey, girl, you're a downer, fuck you. Which is, she's right, that's reasonable. Yeah, it's, right? it, it's a great litmus test for like which people watching the show are psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we must discuss both the fact that John Hinckley Jr. was like, taxi driver has it right, I'm gonna kill a guy and win over Jodie Foster. I get how an unwell person could pull that out of this story. And the, like, Joker shit, which is, like, cool, though. What if it was cool? What if all of this was genuinely cool and we like it? Mm -hmm. Both bad interpretations of this story, (laughs) in my opinion. Well, how about this? How about this from very early in the book? Of course, I'd known some women back home. At least one, I think. Even had a sort of girlfriend. Before the nom. Hedda was older. Not much for good looks, but you can imagine a good egg. Good sort. Sweet. I guess she liked me a lot better than I ever liked her. She really wasn't my type, I'm afraid. No class. Hedda Dugan worked on the line at the Ford gear shop. Nice woman, except I always had this feeling about her when we were together. She was taking me over somehow. She said she loved me, but it felt like she was taking me over. She called me Pickle, like a rhyme. Her big dill pickle. She said she needed a bite of that pickle morning, noon, and night said, you're the nicest pickle in the whole damn barrel, Travis. I was 19, maybe 20. Sure, I liked her, but not that much. She wasn't any dream to me, just another woman. I guess I hurt her feelings. 
I imagine she thought with a face like hers she would have to get her hooks in somebody or else pretty soon. I imagined I was too young for that, that sort of thing. When I left, she cried. There was nobody in her life. Mine neither. Went away and that was that. Hedda never forgave me for not taking her to meet the old folks at home, but she was just a horse of a different color from the kind of person they like to see me with. And I kind of knew that. More like a mother to me than a girlfriend, really. After that, I was away for so long in the service that it was mostly just professionals I saw. Your friends for the night, if at all. And then I heard Hedda. She had gone and done this awful thing to herself with the scissors. And that's when I thought seriously of coming here to New York and the cab business. Quite the little embellishment on the part of... Yeah, I, it was one of those passages in my copy that got a post-it note and uh, a heavy pencil. Do you know there's parts of this book that read, you know, that if you could, if I think what else influenced, you know, I'm not a, I'm probably not enough of an expert of American letters to sort of authoritatively say this, but it feels to me there's there's a bit of a J.D. Salinger catcher in the rye vibe to some of this as well, although that's, you know probably more extreme than anything that, that, that happens in that book, and it's a very long time since I read it. But um, I, I feel it's one of these very audacious additions that Rich, Richard Ellman makes, and it's, it's part of his journey to explaining how Travis came to be who he is. You know, the, there's all sorts of um, trauma wrapped up in this. But the, I, I, I suppose what I would say is, is this beyond that. Hedda is very clearly uh, in, you know, Travis's um, mother, virgin, or triangle, you know, on the mother mm-hmm. side of that triangle. And um, Iris is sort of in the whore side, but he wants her to be more in the virgin side. And that's where he's pushing her towards. And I think he feels really awkward about the fact that she's both a mother figure and wants him sexually. And you can almost imagine him in the act of Congress, in the act of love with her, being very conflicted while this is happening. And she's not, you know, she's, she's, she's a few uh, biscuits short of a full packet. I mean, clearly. Uh, but uh, Betsy is, I think, a, a Madonna figure, but he's trying to push her towards the whore end of the spectrum by taking her to the porno cinema. And I think that Elman is trying to sort of set up, trying trying basically to find ways to complete that triangle for Travis in his portrait of this person. He clearly feels that, I mean, I don't know how long he spent thinking about this. You, you know, in he, he, the interview I said, he, he said he took a month and he dictated it because he didn't have time to write it all down. I don't quite know what that means when you dictate a novel, how you revise it and, and stuff like that in his case. But I think that he... It makes fe- so much sense that this book was dictated. <laughs> it does, yeah. Uh-huh. This thing is like, I mean, this is words spoken. This yeah. is like, I've, I've never heard something more true. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I mean, he, was, he had a lot of journalistic experience, so presumably he was quite good at doing that. But I, but I do think that he's trying to fashion uh, paradigms within Travis's psychology, Travis's mind, as you know, which which um, shade in or or, or 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 give a bigger picture towards his you know complex 
and problematic dynamic with with women i think i think what that's what that's about as well as being incredibly vivid and disturbing because like all the best things what she did with the scissors is i spent you know 10 minutes trying to sort of think what that might be and then i decided i didn't want to know and um there's nothing good you could do with a pair of scissors to yourself you know like it's just something nasty um either to just kill yourself or to mutilate yourself Mm -hmm. in ways that we can all imagine that are awful um, so that's all yeah. just a uh, vivid and it's it's enough to say she did something to herself with scissors you don't have to say any more than that and the book is full of these little sprinkles of just like scary ideas yeah. that's the whole uh, like uh, feel of the book is like because it's in his mind and, and it's sort of like the feeling of his thoughts racing we just get these little glimpses of ugliness and each one makes you go Ugh. I don't like that. Like at the end of the book during the shootout, he really gets caught up on the guy whose hand he shoots to pieces. That like it circles back to that description of like uh right the hand that just blew up like multiple times, which like yeah. Mm-hmm. So I never in my life would have ever guessed, having just read the novel, that sport was played by Harvey Keitel. Never <laughs> ever ever in my life I would have guessed every other character in this book first. I know some of the history of. Harvey Keitel, the decision to cast Harvey Keitel, and also, oh, really? well, it, it, there's kind of an interesting thing around it, which we there's an interesting thing to talk about Taxi Driver further, which is that I understand obviously, Scorsese had a deep relationship with Keitel before De Niro was cast in Mean Streets, but De Niro somewhat stole the show in that film. Although you know Harvey Keitel's you know magnificent as the lead. But when it came to casting Taxi Driver, De Niro was already in place as Travis Bickle. That was part of the deal. And he'd won the Oscar in Godfather 2. And so it was naturally going to him. And I think Scorsese, you know, Keitel was Scorsese's number one collaborator uh, up to that point. And he was trying to convince him to play the character of Tom, as I understand it, which is the Albert Brooks part. Completely different. But if you read Shader's Shader's script, Tom is a big guy that bundles Travis out of the the office. He's physically bigger than yeah. than than um than, than than Travis. And we don't get the sort says of, it in the book too. He's it like is in the book, muscular. although he gives yep. him curly hair, which makes me think that he'd seen a photograph of Albert Brooks when <laughs> Yeah, Elman was like, This Albert Brooks guy's gonna get yoked before they film. <laughs> yeah. There's also one description of Travis with his little beauty mark mole. Yes. Which was like, ah yes, right, De Niro. Very good, yeah. But that's that's true. Yeah. So so but I think that Keitel looked at the script and said, No, this is the character I want to play. And they wrote an extra scene, which isn't in the novel, which is the scene where Sport woos, re-woos uh, Iris and says, you know, but I love you and you're going to stay with me. And it's the, the, one of the creepiest scenes in a very creepy film where he kind of uh, re-seduces her and convinces her to stay. Um, mm-hmm. It's really interesting. If you re- There's a sh- short video on YouTube where Tarantino talks about uh, Taxi Driver and he says the f- he loves the film and he says the film really survives a tremendous cop-out which is that the film has all these views of black pimps looking absolutely terrifying, sitting there staring at Travis. And it really ramps up this fear of the other 
with 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 black guys in this film that they're like some you know the people saying there's this mau mau land out there and all these things and in the novel as well you get a sense that you know going down to harlem is really dangerous and all these things and there's a lot of sort of these you know racism in this world but when it gets to the pimp he's saying that it just seems obvious that this is going to be a black guy and then suddenly it's harvey keitel and it says that it's a he feels that it's a really dishonest swerve towards what the film suggests it's going to be but that it's such a good performance and harvey keitel is so sort of you know so, so sort of magnetic in the role and really makes sense of it in some other way that he actually the film survives it and is all the better for it but he really puts it down to harvey keitel's performance which i which if you watch it is 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 it's kind of an interesting argument i i don't know the the rights and wrongs of it beyond that but um i found the whole journey of harvey keitel being in it and what that might mean, but, you know, very, very interesting as a result. The idea being, like, would, like, the criticism being, would Travis essentially set his sights on a brothel that was run by white people? Am I, is, is that I what think, I'm... I think Tarantino's point is that the film, the, 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 the taxi drivers, the, the, basically the eye of the camera is... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, quite racist at times because it's Travis's yes. eye of this mm-hmm. world of other people, and he even views the the black taxi driver Charlie T as something of a of an unknown scary character. And there's a scene in the yeah. in the in the bar where they're all sitting there, and he looks down this line of these pimps all lined up, and they're made to look really really terrifying. And Tarantino's argument is is the logical extension of that is that the person he's going to save Iris from is going to be a black pimp that this is going to be right. this guy he's going to kill him and he's and it's and it's about these guys um controlling young girls and you know they're the enemy just as just as the en- Travis faced the enemy in Vietnam but it's such a sort of mm-hmm. um I, I think there's another reason for not doing that in that it might have come across as an incredibly sort of racist and dangerous piece of work and might have added another level of you know, you know, danger to what's already quite a dangerous and unpleasant film in many cases. Yeah, especially coupled with the fact that he is 100% lauded for the action, that if he walked into a room of black people and killed yeah. them all, I think that would um, <laughs> leave at the very least a nasty taste in a yeah. lot of people's mouths. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very yeah. good point. And like, Keitel is styled in a way that is off-kilter. I mean, he has that long hair. He's like very svelte. He's like, I mean, that character is described in the book as like a pimply dweeb, basically, who has somehow managed to become a pimp of tweens. Yeah. Um, And Keitel is physically frightening. He's weird and thin and has that one long fingernail, which in the scene where he seduces Iris back is like the focal point for me, is that he is not in any capacity. And you could never forget that he is not some like nice guy who wants to take care of her because that fingernail is always in the in the shot is like such a key visual for me. He's seedy in the wit things that like Travis doesn't like, and you don't need to add on top of that also uh, a level of racism to it. I think it's enough. I have never once considered, including through this rewatch, that the end of this movie is real. And when I went online to read a bunch about Taxi Driver and the discussions about this movie, the fact that it is not a widely accepted dream or fantasy sequence astounded me. Does it even work thematically? 
to have it be real. Like, to, to, I mean, a this man. This is why it surprised me so much that it occurred at all, I think, is that it feels so clear that the end of his journey is he actually cannot exist in the world. He wants so badly to find connection with people. He wants to be part of society. He can't. And the way out of that is he dies. Felt very obvious to me. Um, I love that he doesn't, though. I think it is quite a commentary. Uh, well, what's, what's the commentary? Because for oh, me, it's um, like he chooses despair, and then that's, it's just not, it's not borne out. Yeah, I think for me, the commentary is that like the way that we lift up people based on not who they are at all, but he has like one thing that they interpret as a good thing. And suddenly his, he's good. Like, everyone's like, you're doing great. We love you. And he's like, oh, that's all I ever wanted. I'm fine. He's not fine. He's not well. He, right. This is not a lasting happiness for him or a place of well-being. That the world looks at him and is like, this is a fucked up person, but we don't believe in fucked up people. So he's a hero. Like, he must have done this out of a good place instead of a fucked up place. Because how horrifying would it be to consider that this man was walking around left, right, and center? Is sort of how I read it. It's like a, a we live in a society situation. <laughs> and society doesn't allow for people like Travis. And so they have to make him a hero or else you have to confront something else that nobody wants to. I like it. The, the way that <laughs> scene is shot, though, uh, it, what, what Julia was referring to earlier, where like there's this, this sort of underlying sense of menace and there's the weird thing with the lights and the rearview mirror it seems so so obvious to me that it's signaling that we are not in reality that we are in some sort of other zone some sort of fantasy and that reality is kind of like poking through that maybe that's too modern of a concept maybe films like weren't doing that back then but like it really feels to me as if travis is being like i'm in my little death dream i did the thing wouldn't it be great if I was celebrated for it? And as he's sort of like dying, he's having these little moments of like, maybe this isn't happening. That by the time he decides to kill himself after killing everyone, the idea of what, what if I was lauded for this is gone. That like mm -hmm. he sees himself as a villain who needs to die. That the, the death dream then I think would not be, and it all worked out and now Betsy likes me again. That doesn't quite meld with me. I hear what you're saying. Like for me... Because this is a thing that I tracked more than is purposeful, but like the way his hair changes throughout the movie, like mm -hmm. the cut between the sort of like tight crop and the sort of mop, like comes back and forth and then he has the mohawk and then by the, the very end sequence, it's long again, but he's been in a coma for like four months. To mm -hmm. me, it feels more like the shootout, the craziness, the assassination attempt. Those are the dreams. Those are the heightened concept of, like, what if I could really do these things? It's like, how do you read American Psycho, right? Do you really think he's doing murders, or is he imagining murders as, like, a power fantasy? And for me, it's the same sort of thing. I, I'm willing to take Taxi Driver at face value and say it is all real um, because of this societal concept of, like, people don't shoot up pimps just because they wanted to shoot people. Like, you do it for a good reason. Like, I'm, I'm happy to take it as all real. But if I was going to say which part of this is not real, it's the unbelievable acts of violence. Mm. Julia, what do you think? Well, I, I think what Hannah said is really, really interesting and, and probably a really mature uh, comment, actually, when, you know, I, she sort of said it and shamed me, uh, held the mirror up to my adolescent self when I watched the film. Um, but I, 
like you, the first time I saw the film, my immediate reaction was that post uh, when he's better again, inverted commas, that is all um, a dream. And there are a couple of things that signposted that for me when I first watched it. And the music with the harp becomes, makes all the more sense at that point. That It has this sort of magical, sort of, you know, otherworldly feel. And the letter from the parents read to me like something he'd written himself, you know, in his own terrible yes. handwriting. You know, that he'd, he, he'd written this letter in his imagination or before he'd done the act and it was stuck on his wall or something. And it, funnily enough, the, the other film that had the same effect on me was a much earlier film, which is Vertigo, that when Jimmy Stewart, uh, you know, goes, well, goes crackers and he begins to see, um, you know, he loses the first Kim Novak and so now he's looking for the second, finds the second Kim Novak. For me, at that point, that was all him in a mental asylum, and it's just his imagination at that point. But the second half of the film is all in that imaginary world, and I, I know that other people have had that interpretation as well. But the, both films sort of acted in the same way. From both films scored by Bernard Herrmann as well. I think the I score say, yeah. the score does a lot of that work for you. Since then, I've sort of become a bit more ambivalent about the ending of Taxi Driver. And I, I don't really see it as I'm not really interested in the political, you know, what this means to us as a society interpretation, just because of I, a lot of people talk about that stuff. And so I've decided to talk about other things. But but I, but I feel <laughs> in terms of the the ebb, the ebb and flow of insanity, of madness, of mental illness, it feels to me more like something like that that, 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 that that this is he's gone through his high point and he's descending again now and he's going you know the th things are descending again and he's going back into his taxi and carrying on with his life but the but the but the beast may return again and although that doesn't really have kind of you know it doesn't explain everything from a logical point of view just from a pure filmic point of view i'm sort of happy with it but I, totally honestly first time i saw it second time i saw it i was telling people that it's a dream at the end. It's a dream. It must be a dream. And so it's interesting. There's yeah. something emotional about it. So there's something about the way that scene is shot that makes me feel like it can't be happening. It like emotionally doesn't ring true to me that mm. this is like a thing occurring in reality because everything that's come before it is so visceral, so upsetting. It feels like it is uncomebackable from. Yeah. And to then come back from it, I, my, my body just rejects it. Now, worth noting, the book does not really have the same effect on me. The ending of the book is uh, Betsy gets out of the car, and she basically asks him out on a date. So he's going to get his girlfriend, after all. Yay, everything's coming up, Travis. And it says, as I drove off, I was smiling. I knew Betsy was watching me. It was sort of nice to know I wasn't the only person in New York who liked me. I wasn't the only person in New York who liked me. Should have given that different emphasis. Galore. Lots of people have problems making friends, I thought. Even Betsy. Getting along with other people is never too easy, which is no excuse for not living. The ending of the book is just nice. <laughs> it just feels real and nice and heartwarming, and it confused me. I mean, maybe that's why watching the movie, having read the book first, I was like, yeah, real, he's fine. Like, he's not fine, obviously, but, like, he has worked it out of his system enough to go back to living some kind of normal-esque life. 
Mm-hmm. And part of that is the realization that, like, it's hard. Connections are tough. It's not always going to work out. But, like, I mean, like Wizard says earlier in the book, it's like, it's just something you do. Like, what you do is who you are. And that's kind of what life is. And it's a bummer. But what are you going to do about it? Um, and for a while, Travis thinks I'm going to shoot people. And then he's like, no, I'm just going to go back to it. It's okay. That's life, actually. This has got to be the only piece of fiction I've ever seen that has accurately depicted when you try to talk to another dude about <laughs> something you're going through and they think they're really helping and that they get you and they're just saying something completely different. That wizard oh, interaction yeah. where he's like, I'm going through stuff. I'm aware that, that people go through stuff. Well, I'm going through stuff. Well, you'll get through it. I don't think I will. You'll be fine. It's like just totally... Like if someone said to me... Sometimes it gets so I just don't know what I'm going to do. I get some real crazy ideas, you know, just to go out and do something. I would be so worried. <laughs> that is such, that is that like, like the red flag. Oh my God. That's a guy who's going to kill himself or kill someone else. And Wizard's just like, uh, yeah, uh-huh, you're good though. Don't worry about it. <laughs> like, is that how men talk to each other? Is that how you would interpret that? I'm uh, I'm down to basically miscellaneous thoughts here, but there there is something on at one point where he's like, in the book he's like, yeah, sometimes I'd be driving around and there'd suddenly be a change of scene. Like he just like addresses the montage element of the film as if to be like, I'm in such a poor, brittle mental state that I'm having like swipe edits in my life where I'm driving my taxi and then suddenly it's another night and I'm driving my taxi. He describes the film as, as experience as film running over sprockets at one point. So, the, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I, I think Elman's pulling out all the stops to, you know, create dislocation, metaphors for dislocation, all sorts of ways. I thought it was great. I really liked this book. I would recommend it to people. <laughs> like as Yeah, a book. I think we're, I think we're basically ready to wind down. Let me just find that part where he murders Sport, which is pretty sure. good. Just like loneliness. It's so hard to be alone. Yeah, it, 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 it reminds me... Okay, I'll just do my big treatise here. That the Schrader movie that is important to me, which I think is normal for someone my age, is First Reformed. I'm like crazy about First Reformed. Uh, I, one of the reasons that I think that Taxi Driver ends in a dream sequence is because it's like important for me to see Paul Schrader's life as a thing that started with him being like, it is tough to deal with a lot of the feelings that are inside me as a man. I don't know what to do with them. And so when he's young, he writes this movie Taxi Driver that's like, what if I just followed them to their logical end and I chose despair and I really embraced violence and 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 what would that be like? And it's it's important to me to imagine that it doesn't pay out in the way that the end of Taxi Driver seems to suggest, because the flip side of that is that he matures into this guy that in 2017 makes First Reformed, and it's it's like the same movie, except it's a guy going, everything is lost, everything is despair, the world is fucking shit, and then at the end going, but isn't life just the act of choosing hope anyway it makes no sense but if we were to have always chosen despair there would have been no life like i wouldn't have been conceived if there wasn't hope that made no sense that was just created despite all and i don't know it doesn't work for me that thesis that i've like 
based all of my Schrader love on, doesn't work if we go when Travis Bickle chooses despair, it also ends in prosperity. Like, emo- like an emotional payout. It just doesn't... I, I, I reject it. But hey, I mean, he's, Schrader's a man who you know, matured like the rest of us, so maybe he believed in one sort of thing at one point and then believed in another thing later in life. I think that's something I have to chew on before I could reply to it. Come back to me when we cover the novelization of First Reform. Splickety lick, I stick that 38 into old sports gut and pull hard. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you were done with saying that you had to chew on it. No, no, good. Great, all right, here we go. An explosion, someone screaming funny, pain everywhere and wet stuff on my hands, my coat. Now suck on that. Sport falling into his dark hole screaming. Suck on that. I turn and walk away towards the black staircase and iris. I will open that door. The magnum in my hand, also a thirty-eight special. Going up the stairs a step at a time with two guns. Sport still screaming. Help, bloody murder, you bastard, it hurts, you hurt me. You hard to remember, what to that effect. At the top of the stairs I opened that door, and there was another door of heavy green metal, and at the far end of this dark corridor sat the old man. I opened the door to that old man, the timekeeper sitting there a gun collector, and as he started to get up, Barnacle Bill, with easy access, squeezed his mighty forty-four until the whole hall shook and rumbled. One old man staggering a stump instead of a right hand, fountain of red syrup pouring from the spigot of his right arm, and mayday, mayday, I'm hit. Explosions of blood in my neck and shoulder. Old Sport has me coughing pinpricks. He's fired this one shot after crawling up the stairs behind me. He's put me in the shower with blood everywhere, a bloody lather. Can't find my forty-four. Down the stairwell, Sport again, choking in his blood. He's coughing a lot, a hacking cough, must be dying. I'm wet all over when I fire one more shot into his back with the thirty-eight. I'll just put a few more holes in his back. I point the thirty-eight. The door to room number two, which is Iris's room, is opening. Iris carrying on a yell, and the pudge has his blue shirt unbuttoned all the way, open like a door with a service 38 in his head, in his hand. There's just that one part about bloody craters across the moon I gotta find. You I guys remember that? I have a question, that? Andrew. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's slightly further down. But So you skipped from... Oh, I skip when reading these all the time. Oh, okay. I was just checking, because I think it is... We're talking about his like relationship with like sex and women, coupled with like one more shot into his back with a thirty-eight. Well, he must be dead by now. I'll just put a few more holes in his back, a few cunts, which feels pointed. Oh yes. Um, and I just wanted to check if you had skipped it on purpose or if your version didn't have it. No, no, it's in there. I, I okay. sometimes when I want to cover a lot of ground, yeah, I will yeah, just skip totally. to paragraphs that I like. Just checking. Just checking. The old man in his bloody stump, his bloody stump, his bloody stump. And now I have now the little, little Colt 25 Yep. Yeah. And I just keep squeezing it at the face of Pudge 38 until he rains bloody craters all across the moon. I've lost my little Colt. Yeah, old man, old stump. He's watering my face with his spigot stump. That is the thing that, like, if I was in this situation, would stick with me the most is the stump that I have shot off a man's hand. And now he just has a stump. And he's watering me with his spigot stump. That, that's disgusting. Yeah. Evocative <laughs> writing in a sequence where you're like, well, I don't know exactly what's happening or where people are standing or who this is happening to, but I know the exact experience of being watered by a stump. Like, I get it. <laughs> I can imagine that very viscerally. Yeah, it, I really feel like the, the, 
the book starts as this like collection of random thoughts sort of concatenating um and <laughs> it it really crescendos in like beauty when it gets to the gore at the end where th- th- this almost feels like the first page of a Joan D Vinge book where you're just getting these like beautiful prose that it's it's interesting he seems like such a scattered individual for most of the book and then at the end when he's doing this horrible thing he kind of takes on an eloquence that was slowly building throughout it's interesting it's a book with momentum i guess is my point it's incredible yeah it's incredible how good he gets it at the end you know you think someone who's got this assignment to write a novelization and it gets to the action at the end in my mind, that would be the point at which the artist kind of puts down his pen and says, yeah, I just got to describe what happened. Or maybe I'll do a police report at the end of what happened, you know, or something. Oh, you or better what... believe that this stuff happens in these books. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get it. You know, this is the, the, the guy's like, I've done a lot of work here and it's the 28th of the month and I've, you know, I've got to go on holiday or whatever. And, and it, but instead, he really hammers it home. He, he spends time dramatizing something through this very um this this poetry this prose which is moving into poetry it's it's a it's a remarkable achievement and there's there's a guy actually i read a review online which you can only get back via the way back machine there's a there's a guy called grady hendrix who wrote a review of the it. author the author yeah he wrote a review of this mm-hmm. book but it's been I'm such a nerd. It's been deleted from his website, but you can get it by the the Wayback Machine. And um, I read it because I'd, I'd seen on Goodreads someone mention it, and I thought, I, yeah, I should read this. I read it, and he he says that it's like a brilliant first draft, um, but that it's a, the prose is a bit purple at times, and it goes a bit out there, and you know, really, someone needed to sit down and work on it a bit more to achieve top rank. But I was reading it mm-hmm. again today and I was thinking, you know, I don't really feel fit to judge those decisions that Elman's made in, in, in what you've described there. The way you, you read it so well, I was listening to this thinking, what, you know, who am I to say this is too much? You know, this is pretty, pretty damn good for, you know, what, what he set out to do. And um, I, 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 as much as I enjoyed that, 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 that review by Grady Hendricks, I sort of thought, you know, I don't agree on that final point that, you know, I'm willing to accept his choices as an artist and and submit to them and go into the experience when i'm when i'm when i'm when i'm reading it um just just one slight point i've got about that talking about him as an artist and i was saying that schrader didn't like i read this facebook comment where he said i i I picked up the first few pages i read the first and it gave me i didn't want to go any further too much agita he said or something i didn't need any more agita in my life or something he said he said and, and then I was thinking that Elman didn't really like the film. And I think this is really, really good. That what I want is the Beatles arguing with the Rolling Stones. I don't want all these people sitting down, patting themselves on the back, saying how great they are. I want serious artists disagreeing with each other, arguing, you know, calling each other out, calling each other frauds and disagreeing with each other. And I think it provides a much more healthy artistic environment when people are sort of willing to say, yeah, I didn't like that. Didn't like, you know, I find it so much more interesting than the kind of world we tend to exist in now. Where everybody's patting each other on the back and saying, I love this and well done. And I'm, I'm scared to say I don't like things these days, but I really admire 
these people for just like, you know, this book went into something six printings. It's been translated into loads of languages. And Elman's like, yeah, I didn't like the film. You know, it didn't do it for me. I, I admire it. Look, Julio, I don't know how much authorized you've listened to, but we do take down a book. If it's <laughs> no, no, I know. I know you do. I've been listening. Sometimes the author emails us. I've been so. listening. I heard, I heard that. Yeah, I heard about it. It's fantastic. <laughs> I reached out to her first. She seems like a nice lady. Um, the... <laughs> The, the, the idea that, you have, or that, that you're talking about there with it's, it's refreshing to see people argue, it, it kind of got me thinking at a related point, maybe thematically. There is a central tension to novelizations that I haven't really thought about until you just said that, which is, obviously we know they're books based on movies. They're, they're, they're by definition, a secondary text. But it sort of becomes a situation where like a band goes in and lays down a bunch of instrumental tracks that they created without talking to the lead singer which i know happens every once in a while there's like a fucked up album i love where they did that and it creates a situation where the lead singer comes in and they're like i was not a part of this process i was not a part of the creation of this music and i now basically have to dance atop this platform that was constructed without me which is the very essence of novelizing I mean, when, when, when Elman sits down to novelize Taxi Driver, he does not get a say in what it's about, where it goes, what it's saying. But within the confines of that plot and that character, he does the craziest ditty I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. We're getting into final thoughts here, but, but it, it's just... Am I making any sense? I feel like he, like... Does an okay. incredible job of existing within this film, but also, like, really making it his own. <laughs> Julio Maria Martino, you are watering someone out of your spigot stump. <laughs> your hand blown off in the last few seconds, and your life is probably going to be ending within a minute or two. As you await the sweet embrace of death, you notice that, weirdly, this brothel has a pretty good bookshelf. And on it is Taxi Driver by Richard. Richard? Is his name Richard? Yeah. Elman. Would you, in... What's going to happen is you're going to pick the book up, right? You're going to think you're reading it because you're, like, dying. But then you'll have a, 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 a dying fantasy, which is definitely not real, in which you finish the book and everyone loves you. Would you do it if it was this book? I got kind of lost in that um, description. Of do you recommend the book? I recommend it um, wholeheartedly. I, I think it's, um, it, it's, it's hard to get hold of, and we need to change that, I, I think. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, we need to write to this man's widow and, uh, and the estate of uh, and Paul Schrader uh, and get this out again. But I think it's... I, I fully recommend it. I think it's a remarkable piece of writing that that sits between uh you know it, 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 in the middle ground between sort of like a, a, a stat let's say a standard novelization and experimental writing and it just sits to the right side of experimental writing in that i never felt really this has gone too far I, he's lost me you know I, I i i feel inadequate to the complexities of this piece of experimental writing in fact, you know, it's one of the best experimental novels I've read because it has this great backbone, which is, you know, Paul Schrader's marvelous uh, script of Taxi Driver. 
and it's this weird fusion of 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 two possibly three uh great artists uh um all fighting but producing something something more. the only thing i want is <laughs> the only thing i want is the tape of him of him recording it that's what i want to i'm never going to yeah, get that oh my god but i want the tape somebody called the elmen estate yeah Hannah. yeah you are a taxi cab <laughs> okay you are very lonely to the point where you feel like you might do something really dangerous and transgressive. Mm-hmm. You've got your eyes set on a local politician, name of Palatine. You don't agree with what he's saying, and you, a car, <laughs> right? are thinking yep. of killing him. Seems like it actually might be kind of easy, given your heft. <laughs> Luckily, a man named Travis Bickle starts driving you, and you don't <laughs> uh-huh. have to be in the warehouse anymore, and you're much happier. So you just Great. you just throw that plan away. Would you insert into yourself a <laughs> book on tape of Taxi Driver by Richard Elman to spend, you know, probably the next seven years until you're retired from uh, use by the cab company? I think I don't have a tape deck in me. At, at most, I might have an 8-track, maybe. Maybe. Probably just a radio, though. Um, but that being said, I'm no, young I... and I don't know things. <laughs> I only partially know this because, again, I own this 70s car that only has an AM radio. Um, <laughs> so you can only get Radio Disney. Actually, at this point, I can't get anything. I don't think there's any AM radio stations where I am. So I just drive quietly with my thoughts. It's very healthy. Anyway, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, in general, I think this book is amazing. Everything Julia said is totally true. It's like, entrancing experimental writing um i found it like very sympathetic and empathetic and like just compelled me from stop start to stop um as a book without the movie i would be interested in it and liked it and i read it Mm -hmm. that way and it totally worked for me it does not require the movie to be successful it's like hands down great would recommend it to people left right and center um and i'm not I think, like, if you're looking for the version that's like, hey, Travis is fucked up, like, unequivocally, he is not well and you should not idolize him, uh, the book is definitely the way to go. Um, If you're worried about the teenage boy in your life, maybe hand him the novelization. If he's really getting too hard on a taxi driver, this might be an interesting, helpful piece of text for that person. Yeah, I I like it. I recommend it. Amazing. Andrew Overby. Hello. You are a guy who has committed his life to helping out with political campaigns. You have ambitions. You have goals. And for now, you're running the New York office, which is a big deal. It's not a small Mm. deal, okay? You're doing Mm -hmm. a good job. You're managing volunteers. You got Mm -hmm. a girl in your life that you think might go somewhere. She doesn't seem super into it, but that doesn't mean you won't come to like each other. In my life, you mean she's just nearby. Yeah, she works with you and you're friendly. <laughs> and maybe you hope to kiss her someday, but it's not moving super fast. Then this guy comes in and he's weird and she seems like pretty taken with him. And you're like, what the fuck? What's, what does he have that I don't have? Would you read Taxi Driver to get some insight onto that? Yeah, in that specific situation, it seems really useful. I do think it's the great erasure of this novel that because it is told from Travis's point of view, we don't get anything about the very funny Albert Brooks <laughs> performance i remembered that albert brooks was in this movie but not that he was so funny yeah. for like the two scenes he's in just he can't help himself totally totally it's like I, I i i was thinking wow i can't wait to see this guy with range and it's like no he doesn't have range he's just being amazing in the way he always is 
So anyway, yeah, I loved this book. It was a weird experience reading it on this website. I'm the only one who didn't have a, a physical copy, which is fine. It's my own problem. And Julio was kind enough. He found a website. I don't know what you're talking about. This not being widely available, Julio. You can easily read this online while getting ads for dick pills. Yeah. Uh, to the point, so many ads for dick pills that there's a, there's a button at the top that says, click here for no naked ads. Yeah. They the, uh, know the, who's looking at Taxi Driver. Yeah. I mean, we didn't talk at all about really like Travis's interest in pornography, which seems like totally academic. <laughs> I cannot fathom going to a porn movie with snacks, <laughs> let alone the amount of snacks that he takes <laughs> with him, which shows to me that he is not interested in the sexy, horny, titillating part of porn. He just likes to look at bodies academically right. it's for you to get a bunch of dick pill ads totally tracks for me that's targeted marketing based on what you are visiting on that website yep no it makes total sense but <laughs> i it was a bit of a surreal experience to read this thing online and it's so it's so uh impressionistic and it's so bare bones but also really creative it like didn't feel like reading a book at all it didn't resemble the experience of a book at all it like really felt like I had found someone, someone's like post on a forum where they were like, I did a little, um, a little thing from the perspective of Travis Bickle. And also, I don't know about kerning or paragraphs. And, you know, it was <laughs> it, 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 something about that, though, is it really took me in. It was like it, it felt like I had like found some some weird transmission instead of a, an authorized novelization from the studio. Uh, I loved the experience. I, I really felt discombobulated in the way that the author i think intended and uh it's just a fascinating way to do a novelization i think definitely the most experimental one we've covered yet hard recommend love it love it julio is your movie available to watch anywhere it isn't yet but it will be i'm preparing it for distribution and there's a company's gonna be distributing it i think online pretty much everywhere in all sorts of ways um i think they're really big on tubi and you know the, the the more famous platforms so i think 2023 when i get all my shit together it will be there early 2023 and uh country of hotels yeah please watch it and it's um it's a very unusual film but it's one i'm very very proud of and um yeah I, i'm very excited that it's going to be out eventually yeah there's a very good um, chance that this won't be out till 2023. So fantastic! <laughs> the listeners might be able to just go watch the of Hotels yeah. if that's the case. <laughs> that's perfect. I'll put a bumper in or something that says where Thank to you. find it. So yeah, of course. No, that's great. Thanks for bringing us this book. Listen, you guys are so smart. I, I really, I wasn't expecting. Just, I mean, I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts, but in a way, because they're not about, always this smart. They're, well, they're about different types of books, and so I wasn't sure how to pitch certain things and talk about certain things. But I felt challenged, quite significantly challenged by both of you uh, intellectually quite early on in really like ways. I was like, oh my God, these guys, not only do they know what they're talking about, but they can think in ways that I'm struggling to keep up with. So I, you know, um, I really, uh, and I don't, that sounds kind of patronizing to say that, but I, I you know, I was um, really, really excited. It was a really exciting experience doing it and talking to two people who, you know, you've got so much to say about about just films and novelizations in, in, 
you know, and, and one that's quite sort of out there. It was, it was a really good experience. Thank you. Yeah. Of course, it's such a, a, a pleasure to have a novelization I didn't know exist, id, which yeah. usually like people talk about novelizations. So usually if you haven't heard of one at all, mm. ever, it's not good. You're right. Yeah. Okay. Good like point. If, yeah, it, yeah. if you just haven't heard anything, it's usually like, <clears throat> yeah, it's pretty rote. It's kind of just the movie on paper. Mm-hmm. To not have heard of this and to have read it and for it to be yeah. this like blistering, yeah. vivid morass uh-huh. of upsettingness. Yeah. Like just so fun. What a surprise. I think it comes from, you know, Richard Elman. I've been, got a bit obsessed by him, as you can tell. But, and I really, <laughs> re- I really recommend this book, by the way. Um, which, if you, you I got it very, name dropping, I got it very cheaply online, but obviously with these things, the cheap copy goes, and then, you know, all these people are like, oh, someone's bought a first copy bought in five years, we better bump the price up. But um, it, it's out there. Yeah, you guys definitely didn't do that to me with Taxi Driver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, pal. Um, but, but um, you know, it really existed in that time where I think you could make a living being a writer in a way that i think it's probably a lot more difficult today to do that he says that taxi driver was the most money he'd been paid for for the period of time he worked on it and it was a very good offer of money but you get it this guy just wrote all the time he did radio all the time uh he interviewed malcolm x he did all sorts i mean but i I, all sorts of people he tried to he tries to seduce faye dunaway in the book uh you know it's it's just yeah i mean it's incredible sort of experience dipping into his life so i've really enjoyed it for those reasons as well uh, and i just found him absolutely fascinating so um I'll, I'll be i'll be standing outside his widow's door in about two months or something and uh trying to <laughs> trying to get hold of his unpublished uh audio cassettes and uh, material <laughs> or something, probably. But uh, Sometimes, if we've learned anything from Taxi Driver, it's that sometimes an idea gets into your head yeah, and yeah. you have to follow it all the way through all to way get through, over yeah. it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it's r- remarkable. So thank you very, very much. I had a, a, a really great time. To our listeners, please rate our podcast. <laughs> please subscribe to it. Please keep listening. I mean, if you're doing the other stuff without listening, it's weird. <laughs> review it that's a thing i ask for and then of course you know subscribe to our patreon patreon.com slash authorized pod who knows what we're doing on there at this point if we <laughs> ever hit 75 subscribers we will put out bonus episodes but you know i'm holding hard to that so if it takes like 13 years we'll wait 13 <laughs> years and of course as usual i'm going to end the podcast with a selection from a classic piece of literature. Please tweet at Authorized Pod if you recognize what this is from. Hey, Cabby, could you step on it? I'm late to pick up my children. Of Dune. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>